I could only envision a life that was worth living if I were able-bodied. My physical ability was such a huge part of my identity and also source of my confidence. So I didn't understand how I could live the life that I wanted to live without having the use of my body in the way that I had prior to my accident. Adaptive athlete and podcast host Tim Brown is a lifelong outdoor sports enthusiast. Like many of our guests, Tim spent a lot of his childhood outside, and as an adult, he traveled around the globe to the best slopes and surf spots. But in 2011, Tim's life changed, and he could no longer get outside the way he used to. After years of therapy and a lot of hard work, Tim made it his mission to get back out there. These days, he may need some different gear and a little extra help, but the rush of riding waves and skiing down slopes again is worth it. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Tim Brown grew up outside of Boston in an outdoorsy family that was keen on sports and adventure. He windsurfed, paddleboarded, and even just spent time in the woods running around with his brother. As he got older, Tim spent more and more time surfing, skateboarding, and snowboarding. He self-identified as a surf bum, traveling around, working in restaurants to support himself while he chased the best waves. After a year spent on the beaches of San Diego, Tim was ready to change things up. He became an EMT and followed some friends to Aspen, Colorado, where he tried out for ski patrol. I think it's worth noting that I hadn't skied since I was probably like eight years old. I had just snowboarded. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I talked to the patrol director when I was still in California, he was asking about my background and he was like, great, you know, and, and so just want to make sure you're, uh, you ski, right? And I was like, well, you know, I snowboard, but, but yeah, yeah, I ski too, you know? And so I did not ski at all and showed up and bought a cheap pair of skis and cheap ski boots and tried to follow my friends around on the mountain for a week. And then they had an actual like in-person tryout for ski patrol and I totally ate it. You know, I think they were kind of like, we like you, but come back next year. Even though Tim was rejected from ski patrol that first year, he was pretty comfortable on the snow. So he spent the winter working on his skills. He came back to Trouts the next year and he got the job. During his two seasons on ski patrol, he learned the importance of taking action quickly and being tough. He also started to appreciate just being in the outdoors, even when he wasn't skiing. Then in 2011, his life changed dramatically. I'd like to ask you about your accident. Are you open to talking about it? Of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, so... Yeah, February 13th, 2011, um, my third winter in Colorado, second on ski patrol. At the time, things were going really well. I um, had just had a, received a great mid-season review from my um, my supervisor and, you know, I was, had been on an awesome backcountry hut trip with a few friends just a few days prior. Things were really clicking in my life. That day, I went into work late um, because I was 
taking an avalanche course that night. So, you know, I started later. Um, it was a beautiful February day, you know, warm, sunny, plenty of snow. Showed up to work around noon and threw my helmet in my backpack, took the lift up to the patrol hut. And um, right when I got there, a call came in for a woman needing help up in some some of the higher terrain on the mountain. I was working at Snowmass Mountain in, in Colorado, just down the road from Aspen. And I just, you know, threw my pack down, grabbed a sled, hiked it out to her um, with a few other patrollers, got her out of this terrain. And it was a pretty good, smooth rescue. I was feeling really good about it. Um, but at that point, it was the end of the day and the lifts shut down before we could make it all the way back up to the top, to the hut. So uh, my backpack was still up there. And end of the day, what we all do is is clear the mountain. So every patroller picks a trail. You ski it top to bottom just to make sure no one's left behind. And one of my fellow patrollers brought my pack down to me. I just threw it on my back. Um, you know, the helmet's still in it. And didn't think anything of it because I was skiing the lower half of the mountain, you know, just like a, a blue trail and nothing crazy. Um, something I'd skied, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times. And um, and then getting my bag and sort of being like, I'll see you at the bottom is the last thing I remember. The next memory I have after that is waking up in the ICU in Denver the following day. No one truly knows what happened because I have no recollection of it. And there was no one else around because I was on the trail by myself. It was the end of the day. But uh, I didn't make it back to the patrol headquarters at the bottom of the mountain. And when my fellow patrollers realized that, they quickly went out looking for me. They found me and, you know, I was lying on my back and I was, you know, I was, I think I was kind of semi-conscious, um, but uh, couldn't move. And so they got me off the mountain really quickly and to Aspen Valley Hospital. And then uh, I was helicopter to a Swedish hospital in Denver, Colorado, and underwent, you know, intense surgery to fuse my C4 to my C6 vertebrae. So pretty high up in my neck. Um, so I have a spinal cord injury and I'm quadriplegic. And then I was in the ICU for two weeks. I was on a ventilator, um, you know, fully intubated. Um, and then after two weeks there, I was transferred over to Craig Hospital, which is actually right next door. And Craig is one of the best spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury rehab hospitals in the country, if not the world. And um, I was there for about four months, you know, just the initial acute recovery was just sort of getting off the ventilator and, and, you know, being able to like swallow and eat food again. Um, you know, all things I couldn't do for the first several weeks or like, you know, a couple months. And then it was more kind of, you know, getting fitted to a wheelchair, learning how to, you know, sort of go about the, what are called ADLs or activities of daily living with the spinal cord injury, you know, being quadriplegic, you know, and being able to navigate life. For me, I can move my arms, but I can't, I have no function in my hands. Um, you know, I can move my shoulders and I have bicep function, very little tricep, if any. And so I have the ability to push in a 
manual wheelchair with power assist wheels that give me extra boost. Um, when I left the hospital, I was in a power wheelchair and, you know, I can, with the help of devices, be on a computer, you know, um, eat by myself, but, um, I require a lot of help. Tim's world turned upside down when he became quadriplegic. These days, he needs a lot of assistance to get up in the morning, to go to bed every night, and throughout the day for various tasks. Before his accident, most of Tim's life revolved around his athleticism. He and his friends skied, snowboarded, and surfed together, and suddenly the things he loved most in life weren't accessible to him the way they used to be. That took a big toll on his mental health. Instead of adventuring, Tim had to spend his time learning to use his body. It's snarly what you went through. I mean, I remember we talked a little bit before and you told me, you know, I didn't know this full story, but you did tell me that after that accident, you made it your mission to just try to walk again. Yeah. Yeah. So for the first, I would say four years after my accident, I had the mentality that, you know, this was a a speed bump, a big speed bump, but nothing more than that. And that I was going to figure out how I could be fully able-bodied again. And that's that was all I cared about. That was really the only hope that I had. In a lot of ways, it's what kept me going in those early years when I was really, you know, just surviving. Um, and in large part, I could only envision a life that was worth living if I were able-bodied because if I wanted to surf the way that I knew how to surf and ski and and do snowboard, do all these other things, I had to be able-bodied to do them and really enjoy them and appreciate them because, you know, my, my lived experience and my, my identity was so, so centered around those things. You know I mean? That's what I, that's, the relationships in my life, the, the many of the decisions that I made, you know, my physical ability was such a huge part of my identity and also source of my confidence. And so, you know, to, to feel like I had entirely lost that, I didn't understand how I could live the life that I wanted to live without having you know, the use of my body in the way that I had prior to my accident. How did that feeling shift? Because I don't know, I just think your perspective is very interesting because you lost something that was how you defined yourself by, I think a lot of us define ourselves by our, so many things we take for granted every day. How did you decide to go a different route in your life from wanting to walk again to be able-bodied to yeah acceptance and and maybe something else yeah absolutely so i mean gosh there's there's so so many different elements of of that but um i'd say in those early years it was you know it was a combination of a few things um my lowest point was probably the summer of 2012, so about a year and a half after my accident, um, I'd moved home. Um, and so my parents, my brother and I were all in the house together and my dad and my brother were, you know, stand up paddleboarding and, and surfing and doing all that all the time. And I was, you know, going to uh, physical therapy 
exercise therapy three days a week and just still doing anything I could to try and regain my physical function. And I was, it was really hard for me. Like that was the point where I think, you know, I, I could no longer, I don't want to say kid myself, but I think at that point, the reality of my situation started to settle in, you know, about a year or so after my accident. And then to see my dad and and my brother who, you know, are such huge parts of my life. But at that time to see them doing the things in the ocean that I love so much and to be able to not be able to participate in that, that was really, really hard. And it was hard for them too. But, you know, at that point I couldn't really, I could sort of theoretically understand how it was hard for them, but like I was in so much pain and depressed and, and, you know, I, I had suicidal thoughts. I, I can admit now. And, and I would just like lock myself into my room, you know, and I'd come home and we'd all have dinner together as a family every night. And, you know, I'd sort of give one word answers and I was not very engaged. And my mom, I was seeing a therapist at the time, but my mom knew that something was really not right. And she pushed me to see a different therapist. And I really pushed back on that for a few months saying, I'm seeing a therapist. I'm fine. You know, like, yeah, when you're seeing one therapist, it's like hard enough to go to a therapist (laughs) and then have to switch. Yeah, exactly. So I was unwilling to admit that I wasn't okay. And then she said, you know, we found this therapist locally and, and the guy I was seeing was great, but he wasn't the right fit. And so we went as a family to see this new therapist. And, and then I went, you know, with just my mom and then just my brother. And, and then after a few sessions, he said, you know, Tim, I'd like to continue seeing you alone. And he had, he's a great guy and he had earned my trust at that point. And I said, absolutely. And here we are nine years later. Wow. And I still see him almost on a weekly basis. And that, so that's been huge. And then after four years, I had pursued so many different types of therapy, I think, which culminated in going to Australia for about two months to do this sort of interesting alternative therapy with a guy down there. And and that was the last thing I did where, you know, I think I I went in thinking like, I'm going to get on this plane in Boston. And two months later, I'm going to come back. I'm going to walk off that plane. And that didn't happen. But what did happen is that I went to the other side of the world, myself and one of my aides who works for me, the two of us, we flew over there lived in a little, you know, little apartment in Surfer's Paradise in Australia for two months and traveled around a little bit and came back and it went really well. You know, I mean, I didn't have the outcome from the therapy that I wanted, but that really rekindled my sense of adventure and desire to travel and also made me realize that if I could live in Australia for a couple months, I could certainly move out of my folks' house. For years, Tim did everything he could to learn how to walk again. Even though he didn't get the desired outcome from his time in Australia, the trip empowered him in so many other ways. He decided to move to Boston to live on his own. Maybe he couldn't walk, but he could lead a fulfilling, adventurous life. When we come back, we'll hear about Tim's podcast, the lessons he took away from his injury, and advice for people who might be going through something similar.
One of the ways Tim has embraced his independence is by getting back into his favorite sports. He took up adaptive surfing and skiing, which is no small feat. Because Tim is quadriplegic, he relies heavily on his upper body to prop himself up on a specially designed surfboard. As for skiing, Tim had to learn to use a sit-ski, which has a molded seat with a shock absorber. As you can imagine, relearning his favorite sports hasn't been easy. But as Tim's mindset about living with a spinal cord injury shifted, so did his experience of adaptive sports. Instead of focusing on how many waves he caught or the craziest tricks he could do, he started to focus more on the experience as a whole, preparing, reflecting, and just spending time with friends in nature. Can you tell me about how you learned adaptive skiing and surfing? I think the first adaptive sport I tried was the winter after my accident. So that was the winter of 2012. Um, I went to Sunapee in New Hampshire with a very good friend of mine and got out in a ski with their adaptive skiing program. And, you know, it was, it was really good to be back on the mountain. It felt great to be out in the cold, the fresh air. Um, I had a pretty good instructor and we were able to get out and, and make some turns. And, and that was... That was cool. And then I had some more challenging days in New England where I'd fall a lot. And sometimes the instructor would be kind of approach skiing with me from a bit more of a patronizing approach, uh, more like I'm here to take you skiing and you're going to follow my lead. And that was frustrating for me coming from, you know, from having worked as a ski patroller at West. But I go back out to Aspen and Snowmass and ski there with a a great instructor, Ryan Latham at Challenge Aspen. And those days were really fun. So I did that for a few winters. And then at some point, I just decided that, you know, if I really wanted to get back into skiing, uh, I needed my own equipment. And and that just, you know, going to a few different mountains every winter and skiing in different equipment and having different instructors wasn't going to allow me to progress and ski in the way that I wanted to, which was just going out to the mountain and skiing with my friends. And so, I applied for a grant and purchased my own sit ski in the fall of 2018. And that was a real game changer. Having my own equipment and being adjusted to it, having it be comfortable and consistent each time I went out really allowed me to start progressing. And And then last winter, you know, I, I got to the point where I just, every time I skied was just with friends. Um, and, you know, that was incredible because that to me is what all of these things are about is going out and pursuing a sensation and doing it with the people who you care about in your life in the outdoors. And what about surfing? With surfing, I surfed in New Hampshire for the first time after my accident with a really great crew of people, including you know my family and good friends, a lot of people who I still surf with to this day. But it was cold and there were a lot of people there and I wasn't really able to prop myself up on the board and... It, it was hard because, you know, the, the the previous surfing experience I'd had to that one was when I was able-bodied and paddling out on my own and catching waves and, you know, surfing them at a, with a pretty good amount of skill. And um, so that contrast was, I felt that contrast strongly. Surfing a- after that first day was different in that, you know, once I got past the frustration of that first time back in the water, And I say it was frustrating, but it also felt incredible to be in the ocean and to feel the salt water on my face. You know, we started experimenting with taking stand-up boards and 
and strapping foam rolls on them to, to keep me in place. So then I was quickly able to prop myself up on my elbows instead of having someone on the board with me, have them just push me into the wave and then turn the board as much as I could. Those, those are pretty big stand-up boards. Um, and then in 2018, I got my first adaptive board shaped by legendary shape route in Southern California, Steve Bainey of Infinity. That was, you know, eight, six, so much shorter and had a couple sawed off fins on the top to, to prop up my elbows. So just a lot more low profile on a smaller board. And, and I will never forget that first session out on that board. And just all of a sudden I was turning and I was, you know, I was really turning the board and I was surfing down the line and, and connecting sections. And, and that felt really incredible. There's definitely a bit of a learning curve with skiing and with surfing. But the important thing is that, you know, as they say, try anything twice. And so the more I did both of them, the more I really fell back in love with them. And maybe even better way of saying it is I fell in love with them again in a new and different way. How have you changed your life since the accident? I mean, stuff definitely happened to you, but you took action and made really conscious decisions to change your life. Yeah, thank you. That's that's a great question. That's a big question. I think that, and I don't do this perfectly all the time by any means, but I try to be more gracious and express gratitude often. You know, I have to ask for help every day. I need help from people. And whether that's just getting up in the morning or it's, you know, going surfing or skiing, I don't have that same level of independence that I had when I was 25 years old and able-bodied and working as a ski patroller and going on all these adventures. And, you know, I certainly, I took that for granted at that time. Um, and so now, yeah, I really try to express more gratitude toward the people who are in my life. And, you know, I really make an effort to take care of myself, not that I was an unhealthy person before my accident. So I think it's, you know, trying to live with a little bit more intentionality, you know, is, is, um, something that has changed quite a bit in my life with my disability. Doing anything takes a little bit more effort. It takes longer to get from point A to point B. It takes a lot more effort to go surfing or go skiing or go sailing. And so being more intentional about creating those opportunities for myself and then being grateful for those opportunities when they do happen and again, thankful to the people who helped me do them is, is really something that I, I just, I, I try to be uh, very mindful of. And I think probably the, one of the biggest shifts in my, my psychology, I guess, has, has been how I value myself and my identity, you know, and knowing that being this young, fit dude who can, you know, just like hold the, hold the zone in the mountains and in the ocean does not make me a like more valuable member of society than having a disability than, than I am now having a disability, you know? And I, I truly thought that <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous, but I thought that like people liked me and I had friends and my, you know, sort of my contribution to my friend groups was just being a dude who could like, you know, ski fast or like paddle out in, you know, decent sized waves and go on adventures and, you know, party and chase girls and, you know, and do all those things that like, you know, a 
straight dude in a ski town does and you know <laughs> like when you're in your 20s and then when i when i didn't feel like i could do that anymore um that was that was hard but now i know and this is probably some wisdom that comes with age as well but i think you know perhaps a little accelerated for me you know those things are pretty pretty superficial and that you know being a, a good person and being thoughtful and considerate of others and um you know and trying to have a positive impact though that's a lot more important uh, and, a, and a lot more fulfilling tim's desire to have a positive impact has come to fruition in a big way this year he decided to share his understanding of adaptive sports by starting a podcast called The Unexpected Journey. As an athlete who's lived the experience of becoming disabled, Tim makes a fantastic host. You have a brand new podcast, The Unexpected Journey. Tell us all about it and why you started it, what it's been like, who you interview. While I was doing all that therapy, you know, trying to regain my physical ability. I also went back to school. I got a master's in sustainability and environmental management. And I'd moved into Boston and I graduated. And some of the classes that I enjoyed the most were the ones that were either taught by entrepreneurs or had an entrepreneurial element to them. So when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to start an adaptive sports company. Like that'd be really cool, you know? And fortunately, some friends and band members were like, you should probably get a job and work at a company and learn how that works before you just decide you're going to start your own company. So I got a, I got a job working at a, a renewable energy startup called Solstice and that was great. And, but that idea was always in the back of my head. And, um, I've also long had an interest in journalism and a few years ago now, um, uh, like two and a half years ago, I, just had this moment where I was like, I need to combine those two and start an adaptive sports magazine. And considered that, talked to some friends in print media, and they were like, print media is pretty tough. Like, you know, you might want to give that a little more thought. Um, but someone mentioned a podcast, and I was like, great, podcast, that'll be super easy, which, as you and I both know, it's not super easy. So that was uh, two and a half years ago now. And just started talking to people and taking some courses and slowly growing this idea. And then I just started reaching out to other folks in the adaptive sports community. Um, some of whom I'd met in person at events and some of whom just, you know, had mutual connections and reached out to them on Instagram and we launched it in May. So we're now finishing up season one and the, yeah, the idea is to interview other adaptive athletes, adventurers and creators and just hear their stories. Um, you know, these are people who are doing really cool things out, outside and they're really, you know, making an impact on their community. And I think that, you know, it's really important for these stories to be told because they are, again, like, impressive people doing cool things, but they're just, they're just people like, like the rest of us, you know? And so my hope with the unexpected journey is that 
by elevating these stories, people will one just come to understand more about disability. You know, this is more for folks who are able-bodied and just sort of normalize that experience that these are people with the same or similar hopes, dreams, and desires as as all of us. But also for people who have disabilities to hear people with a similar lived experience doing something cool, you know, really having an impact, getting out there, getting after it, really living their life to the fullest. I think that's so important. I know for me, interviewing people who are somewhat like-minded and also inspire me is about the best job I could ever have. I love talking to people like you, people who are very authentic, doing what you want to do, not afraid to talk about the stuff you've been through. So imagine for you interviewing these other athletes had to just feel amazing. Do you have any stories of what it's been like to interview other people or even what the response has been like? Honestly, it's been even cooler than I thought it would be, you know, and and I like selfishly, I've learned so much from hearing their stories and and listening to them motivates me to push myself harder, you know, and, and I wasn't necessarily expecting that. So the, the first guest who came on the show, Anna Sowens, she's a paramountaineer. So she has a spinal cord injury and she climbs and skis down like big volcanoes out in the Pacific Northwest. She's a total, total badass. She came on and we had an awesome interview. And then the second guest, Greg Durso, is a guy who lives in Vermont, works for the Kelly Brush Foundation. Great conversation with him. And then after his episode aired, Anna texted the two of us and was like, you know, like, Greg, I didn't know you skied in Japan. I skied in Japan too. Like, we all got to go skiing in Japan together sometime, you know? And that was just this really cool little moment of building this community. But, but I think that even, you know, more, much more powerful than that was Anna separately texted me a screenshot of a girl who had reached out to her who'd been recently injured and was trying to figure out how to get back outdoors. And she was asking Anna a very specific question, I believe, about like how she uses a catheter to go to the bathroom when she's out in the woods. And that to me is like what it's all about. You know, here's this person who's just gone through this really traumatic experience and she's just trying to figure out how to get back to living her life the way that she wants to. And if, you know, just hearing Anna's episode prompted her to reach out to Anna directly and say, Hey, you know, like I'm trying to figure this out. Do you have any advice? That was like, that was amazing. You know, that, that is what makes it, it worth it. What else do you hope people will take away from the show? I hope that people have a better understanding of the many elements of living with a disability, of some of the challenges that face folks with a disability. But at the same time that, as I said before, you know, while there is an added layer of adversity that comes with having a physical disability, navigating the world that we live in, given the right resources, there are so many people with a disability who are totally just thriving in life. And, you know, we are all just normal people who want to have the opportunity to, to live the life that in the way that makes us feel most fulfilled like anyone else. And, and also, 
my other hope is that people listen to these stories and particularly if you have a disability, but really for anyone that, you know, you are motivated to challenge yourself in whatever, in whatever form that is, you know, whether it's, you know, I talk with one of the guests about just going down a ramp that's maybe a little bit steeper or a little longer than I'm used to, you know, and sort of safely taking that risk. I might be a little uncomfortable with it, but you know, that, that moment right there is like a huge win for me. It's like exhilarating, you know, and that's something that I never would have even thought twice about before being in a wheelchair. It's called the unexpected journey because there are things in life that happen to all of us that we can't anticipate. And, you know, it's really, it's about how you respond to those moments and, and how you are able to just sort of be present and be in the moment and, and accept those feelings of discomfort and, and stay engaged, you know, with what you love and with your surroundings and with the people in your life. So Tim never anticipated becoming quadriplegic and he's still working on coming to a place of acceptance about what happened to him. Even though it was unexpected, he's certainly making the best out of it. It takes a lot of bravery and dedication to return to your passions after an accident like Tim's. I love that he's using his connections to tell stories of other adaptive athletes and to share advice. Is there any advice you wish you'd been given in 2011 that you give to people today? Mm. I think advice that would have been helpful or that I should say that I would give someone today is that one, it's going to be hard, but that's okay. There's a huge sense of loss and grief, but don't try and push that away. You know, if someone had said like, it's okay to be really, really sad. That's totally normal. You've experienced this huge loss. And if you're, you're angry and you're bitter and you're, jealous and you're just all these really nasty emotions that no one really wants to like admit to or like, you know, fully accept and embrace. I definitely, you know, tried to suppress those, but they're natural and they're normal. That would have been helpful in the moment. And, and also one thing that I definitely would tell people now is, is that, you know, you will find a strength and a courage within yourself that, that you had not tapped into before. It will take time, but you can absolutely live a life that is like fully engaged and full of joy and awe and challenge and excitement and adventure and, and all those great things that we all love. And uh, those are things that I didn't think I could, I could experience again. Advice also to able-bodied people. I'm in an area where actually I'm really lucky. There's a lot of really cool adaptive athletes all around me surfing. And sometimes I don't know what to say and I'm awkward. It's happened in the surf. Mm -hmm. Usually I just say, hey, and make an inappropriate joke like I do to everybody else. But um, (laughs) sometimes I offer help and I don't know if that's like the right thing to do. But especially when they're trying to get out in the surf on a ski. Yeah. But like what advice to able-bodied people do you have? Especially when it comes to seeing an adaptive athlete out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I think what you said, Shelby, about how 
you sometimes just say hi and or your default is just to say hi and make an inappropriate joke or comment because that's what you do to everyone yeah like not not about their do, disability just you know yeah, about well, like well, surf or whatever yeah no well since you do that to everyone else you should you should treat people with a disability the same so that's perfect um you know i've always thought that you know if i'm cruising down the sidewalk and someone who's really friendly says hi to me great because that's how they treat everyone else. Or if someone's not friendly, they shouldn't feel like they have to say hi to me because I'm like this dude in a wheelchair, you know? So so basically, think, if you're a you jerk, know, just continue to be a jerk is your advice. <laughs> totally. And if you're and if you're friendly and nice, be friendly and nice, you know, and don't like, if you're like awkward, if you your eyes. Like yeah, me, exactly. Just keep being awkward. Okay. I like yeah. That. I think you asked a great question as well about, you know, offering to help. And that's a big one, um, you know, and, and I think that, it's okay to offer help, but you have to respect that person when you're doing so. And if they say, I'm fine, then go away. You know, if you say, Hey, you need a hand and they say, Nope, I'm good. Then you just, you know, you walk away. You don't sit there and sort of watch them to make sure that they're good. You know, for me, like I, I'll be out and I might get stuck on a curb or something like that. And I need a hand. And so I appreciate it. Say, Hey, you need a hand. And I say, yeah, Great. And then once I get up on that curve, say, Hey, I'm good. Thank you very much. You know, but for someone who's paraplegic, they're more independent than I am. And so, you know, several of the guests I've spoken to will talk about how they will you know, be out grocery shopping and then putting things back in their car or, you know, getting something off the, the shelf in the store. People come like running, offering to help. And, and they're just like, you know, I just want to be left alone. Like, I'm I'm good. I can handle myself. So I think it's just, if you feel the need to offer to help, first, pause and ask yourself, does this person look like they really need help? And if they do, ask politely and then just follow their lead, you know, because they will tell you whether or not they need help. Uh, and I think two more things that are important are, one, like, Always address the person with a disability the same way you would address anyone else. Don't address like their friend or their partner or their parent who is right next to them. You know, that happens all the time. And the one last thing, this is another big one that is a a common theme on the podcast is if you see someone doing something, whether it's surfing or skiing or wingsuit flying, you know, don't just go up to them and say, oh man, you're so inspiring because that's not why we're doing this. We're, we're not going out there to be an inspiration. We're going out there to do the thing that we love because it makes us feel good and we do it with the people who we love and we're pursuing that feeling and that sensation and we do it differently. But, you know, it's, we're not just like, I'm going to wake up today and be an inspiration. So, you know, there are times when certain people in my life who know me well will say something to that effect, but say it in a way that's really meaningful, you know, but when I'm surfing with my friends and my family in Gloucester, and then I get out of the water and these random people come up and say like, you know, wow, you're such an inspiration. Like it just sort of, I know their intent, it's well-meaning, but it kind of, um, it takes something away from the experience a little bit, you know, cause all I want to do is just be in the ocean catching waves, you know, and, and I'm not doing it for attention. And so I think just, you know, 
it's important for able-bodied people to understand that adaptive athletes just just want to get out there and do what they like to do. Despite all the challenges thrown his way, Tim is continuing to get out there and to do what he loves. He might not be the exact same surf bum that he was before his accident, but his passion for the outdoors hasn't changed a bit. For a lot of us, our identities are very tied to the things we do. I consider myself a surfer, a podcaster, and a runner. But ultimately, we're human beings, not human doings. Most of us aren't forced to learn that lesson the way Tim did. Tim's story brings up important questions about identity, doing what we love, even when our body or ability changes, and most importantly, finding a way to get outside even when it isn't easy. I highly recommend listening to Tim's podcast, The Unexpected Journey. The guests are incredible and the conversations are genuine and educational. You can find season one anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Unexpected Journey Podcast to keep up with new episodes. You can also follow Tim at Tim Joe Brown to see what he's up to. That's T-I-M-J-O-B-R-O-W-N. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your wild ideas and just doing what you do with us. I really appreciate it and I appreciate you. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow this show, rate it and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.